in order to get policies that actually stand a chance of solving real problems, we need to first have a conversation about institutional design, which leads us inexorably towards a, a reconsideration of that first moment when these institutions were born in the Constitution. The founders cannot save us. We must save ourselves. It's a bold statement, and it comes from Professor William Howell's compelling new book, Relic, out this week. The book's co-authored by Howell and Terry Moe of Stanford University, and its main thrust is nicely captured in the subtitle, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. Today on the podcast, Howell sits down to talk about the book, about why our worship of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers is paralyzing us, and what he thinks we can do about it. He also describes how it felt to make the leap from academic to policy advocate. Terry Moe, who's my co-author, he and I have been talking about and writing about the presidency for a very long time. But we tend to write about it and think about the presidency in strictly positivist terms, that is, What can the president do? Under what conditions can the president affect meaningful policy change? But we don't think about it, we hadn't been accustomed to thinking about it in normative terms. That is, what powers should the president have? What what role should the president play in our larger politics? And I think rising concern about the inability of our federal government to solve problems propelled us to make this turn from the positive to the normative. We wanted to say something about the kinds of institutional reforms that would be needed in order to produce a more effective government. And we saw the presidency, which is something we've been thinking about for a very long time, as being central to to that effort. And that turn from positivism to normativism, did that feel like a dive into unknown territory? or were um, you... it, it, it did in some ways. This is a book with an argument. It's an argument about the status of our constitution, and it's an argument about the need for institutional change, and it's an argument on behalf of a, a stronger presidency. We're, we're not just sort of making it up, though, right? We're not kind of flailing in the winds. The, the arguments that we make draw a lot upon our own disciplinary work and the, the work of the discipline more generally. The title of the book is Relic, being a holy thing to be revered but never touched, but also this sort of association... We use relic also to mean a vestige of a, a bygone time, right? Something that's outlived its usefulness. So to describe why you believe the, the Constitution has become the latter kind of relic. The Constitution was written at a time when the nation consisted of 3.2 million people who were not slaves, 700,000 additional slaves, 95% of the country consisted of farmers. The federal government was not expected to do very much at all. It was meant to attend to the common defense, quell domestic insurrections, some attendance to the national economy. But the government that we had then looked nothing like the government we had today. The society that we lived in then looks nothing like the society we live in today. And the animating values of political actors then look very different from the kinds of animating values that motivate us today. We have plenty of disagreements in contemporary politics, but there are a set of values and commitments about the right to vote, about the view that people are not property, that were very much in the mainstream then, um, and then no longer are. 
And so we wanted in a forceful way to contrast the world then from the world today and then raise the question and encourage us to think critically about the extent to which the government born of that era makes sense for an era where we have over 300 million people, an incredibly complex economy where the United States has hegemonic power on the world stage. And there are all kinds of vexing problems that the founders never anticipated. And they, their, their, their government that they created certainly wasn't designed to, to solve. And talk to me about the, insofar as the Constitution outlines how the legislature should work. Um, there are a few driving attributes that you argue have led to an ability to pass coherent policy. Um, sure. So the first issue is separation of powers, right? So it parcels authority across the various branches of government, which makes coordinated, effective governance very difficult. The second problem is that the founders designed a system of government that put Congress at the very center. Congress is very much the first branch of government, and the founders designed a government quite intentionally that they imagined would exalt the authority and and privilege the sensibilities of legislators. The decision-making body that they created, we, we point out, has a number of features. The first is that it privileges parochial considerations, that members of Congress have every incentive to pay attention to how a policy is going to affect their district or their state. They see policy through the lens of local interests and local needs. They don't privilege, first and foremost, how policies can affect the country as a whole. Second is that they're running for re-election. They need to build a legislative uh, set of accomplishments and show a return to their constituents on a regular basis. And so their time horizon tends to be much shorter. They want to think about how policy first is going to affect their district and then how it's going to affect their district today. And then the third piece is that legislators, when they think about constructing policy, they pay much more attention to the pieces than they do to the whole. They, in thinking about how policy is going to affect their district. They pay particular attention to how healthcare as a system or how tax policy as a system is going to bear upon some local interest or some key constituency within their jurisdictional boundaries. Because of that, they pay attention to the pieces. And then you, what do you have? You have today 435 voting members of the House and 100 voting members in the Senate, each of whom are thinking about things in very parochial terms, privileging contemporary considerations, and trying to carve out exceptions and loopholes and special privileges for their own constituents, which leads to policies that are incredibly complex, lack coherence, and aren't first and foremost designed to solve the problems as a whole, but rather to ensure the individual welfare of local constituents and organized interests within them. And you see evidence of this all around. When you look at the tax policy, which runs thousands of pages and consists of all kinds of loopholes, when you think about the the Affordable Care Act, the Signature Domestic Policy Achievement under Obama, which runs over roughly 1,000 pages long and consists of all kinds of carve-outs and exceptions for doctors and insurance companies. And that's that's where we actually have policy. We don't have a comprehensive energy policy or comprehensive solution response to something like climate change. And so the the pathologies, the institutional pathologies built into Congress from from the get-go have meaningful consequences, we want to argue, for the kinds of policies we actually observe. 
why is this happening now when it didn't happen in the good old days? We want to argue that there were no good old days. There weren't periods of time when, uh, before the era of polarized parties and, and when legislators were statesmen and they recognized the honor and dignity of serving in Congress, great policy was written. No, these institutional considerations we've articulated were there from the get-go and they've informed legislative deliberations ever since. There are reasons why policy from the 50s and 60s has as many pathologies as those that we observe today. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, too, is when you go all the way back to the founders, right, they, again, had in mind a government that wasn't going to do much, that was going to serve the interests of a largely homogenous population in which the vast majority of people didn't even vote, right? You take away slaves, you take away women, you take away non-property holders, you take away children, you're left with a tiny sliver of interest that you actually have to attend to. And so this was not a government that was meant to solve big, complex, trenchant problems. It was a government that was meant to guard against the tyranny of a majority, right? They were deeply concerned about big government. And so how did they guard against it? They built a system of separated powers and they put at its center, again, a collective decision-making body where local interests would be represented one person at a time. I think we need to clarify the way that you're thinking about the presidency, because I think it's pretty scattered in, in sort of the, the popular mind. We have the idea of, you know, these great noble leaders, the George Washington kind of archetype. Then we have the sort of conniving, power-hungry Richard Nixon at his worst kind of ideal. And then the election season, where we see so much about the personalities of the candidates and what that says and how that will determine who they are. How do you what what determines how a president governs in your mind? So personalities don't figure large in our telling. What we want to do is think about what are the base incentives of presidents, generically, presidents in the main. What are the central tendencies? What can we expect from presidents by virtue of where they sit in government? And there it's worth paying attention to, first, that presidents, unlike legislators, represent the country as a whole. They're the only elected officials that represent the country as a whole. And so if you're looking for individuals who have political motivations to attend to national considerations, the presidents are the only game in town. Everybody else is looking at it through their lens of the 4th District of Illinois or the 7th District of Massachusetts. So they, they, they think in bigger, broader terms than do legislators. They also, people generally recognize that Presidents care a great deal about legacy. They care about what role they play in history. They're attending not to, just to the interests of today's citizens, but of tomorrow's and of the historians who are going to judge them and try to discern what their contributions to history looked like. What makes you, what makes you say that? Well, there are moments when individual presidents will say as much. They say that you know, they're going to... They don't care much about polls today. They're going to do what's right. And they will confess in their memoirs and to aides, as both Bush 43 and Clinton did, that they cared a lot. They thought a lot about how the actions that they took were going to affect how future generations would judge them. And to the extent that that's so, they see policy 
in not just a broader geographic scope, but also a longer temporal horizon. They think about how actions taken today are going to reverberate tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's not that they are in any way perfect. We're not trying to lionize presidents. But the the point of comparison are legislators, right? Because we start with a system of government that exalts legislative authority. And relative to legislators, presidents, because they sit alone atop their governing institution, right? There's a hierarchy to the executive branch. They think a lot more about the coherence of policy. They think a lot more about how policy is going to, how it stitches together and forms a well-integrated whole. And so those, those three key weaknesses that are built into the design of the legislative branch are attended to in the executive. So where does this lead us? What's the uh, systematic change that you're advocating here? Well, in the first thing to, to note is that we need to think about institutional change. It's not enough if you worry about things like climate change, things like rising inequality. It's not enough to just call for the optimal policy solution. We ought to pause and reflect on why we have a government that's been so incapable of ushering up anything that would look like a rough approximation of a solution. And that's where we then get into the business of thinking about institutional reform. This was a core feature of the progressive era when they too, over a century ago, progressives recognized that that the government born of the Constitution was wholly inadequate to solve the problems associated with rising immigration, the growth of uh, an, a new industrial economy, and the emergence of the United States on the world stage, that they needed to get into the business, first, of attending to corruption, but second, to thinking about institutional reform, and they too saw that a shift of authority from the legislative to, to the executive branches of government was going to be central to that. And since the progressive period the obligations and imperatives and challenges of the contemporary world have just become all the more aggravated. There's this yawning gap between the world when we started and the world we inhabit today. So we need to think about institutional changes. We think that that involves shifting authority from the legislative branch to the executive branch, but not doing so blindly. And so the solution is not something like a line-item veto which was a power that was given to Clinton in the late 90s by a Republican Congress and that the Supreme Court subsequently took away. We're not arguing for that kind of a thing, right, where, where the presidency, all any power that flows to the executive branch is a good thing because there, that doesn't take advantage of the president's ability to set the terms of policy debate in ways that are attentive to national, long-term, well-integrated policy solutions. What instead we want to do is exalt the president's agenda-setting capacities. And the way to do that, we think, is to advance universal and permanent fast-track authority. Now, fast-track authority is a power that presidents intermittently have had since the early 1970s in trade policy, in which the president and his advisors can negotiate terms of trade policy with other countries, and that the terms that they settle upon then are put before Congress and Congress is given a fixed period of time and has to vote on them on an up or down basis. So what Congress cannot do is just ignore the president's actions. They can't nickel and dime him and modify this and adjust that to attend to some local consideration or not. They have to vote on it on an up or down basis, taking the policy as a whole. Can you kind of take us back to the early 70s? Because this was a Democratic Congress 
authorize Nixon to do that, which I think to a lot of people would be kind of surprising and interesting. Yes, there was a, a recognition by legislators that they were incapable of negotiating these terms with other countries, that if you wanted to increase trade with other countries in ways that would be coherent, right, that would not have all sorts of carve-outs for one local industry or another, the way to do that, that legislators recognize, is they would have to tie their hands and they have to vest authority in the executive branch so they could negotiate terms that would be good for the country as a whole. Once those terms had been negotiated, it would reduce the opportunities for legislators to intervene and modify and amend and water down these larger trade initiatives. What that has led to is an incredible expansion of the, the, the levels of free trade between the United States and other countries. It's accelerated trends of globalization. And most economists would say that this has been all to the good, right? That there are some local costs that certain populations face, but in the main, it's really good for the country as a whole. These are precisely, too, the kinds of policies that presidents uniformly care about. It's why Democratic and Republican presidents, presidents that look very different from one another in terms of their partisan and ideological orientations, consistently advance policies that encourage free trade, it's precisely because it, it, it is good for the country as a whole. That's what they do. It's what they're, how they're wired. Those are kinds of concerns that they're wired to attend to. Why did the Congress limit themselves? That seems awfully big of them to say, we realize that we have a shortcoming here and we're going to, by limiting our own power, allow you to overcome it. Is that what was happening? I mean, what? Yes, that was an important part of what was happening. And it's not the only domain in which Congress has done this. They regularly delegate authority to the executive branch during times of emergencies because they recognize that they are institutionally ill-equipped to respond to sudden crises. They, they tie their hands when it comes to the closing of military bases because they recognize every time they are asked to identify a base, a military base that needs to be closed, the representative in whose district that base is located, has powerful incentives to fight like hell to keep it open. They've also done this on the budget. So starting with the 1921 Budget Act, right, presidents were given the authority, in fact, given the obligation, to propose a budget that would serve as the starting point for deliberations on what kinds of monies would be appropriated to what sorts of purposes. That there was a coherence and a national outlook that presidents had that they wanted to take advantage of, and so they willingly vested that authority in the executive branch, even though Congress, legislators, are the ones with the power of the purse. So let's walk through what this would look like. Let's say that th there was this fast-track system in place, and President Obama was trying to pass something like the Affordable Care Act. He would put together a cohesive plan, and then it would go to Congress, and they would just have to say yay or nay. That's right. That's the idea. I mean, the, the ACA that we have is certainly ambitious. It's an incredibly important legislative achievement. Let's be clear about that. But it also is riddled with carve-outs and exceptions and, and inefficiencies that were needed in order to get it through the existing legislative process. If the president had the authority to come forward and say, here's the proposal, you have to vote on it, and you have to vote on an up or down basis. The opportunities for individual legislators to lobby on behalf of their local industries and local interests would be diminished. And as a result, I think that we have reason to expect that we would have a, a more coherent and a more efficient healthcare reform as a result. We certainly would not have a healthcare policy that runs close to a thousand pages in length. There are other policies that Obama in particular tried to advance that he couldn't get enacted at all, precisely because he couldn't get a vote on it. So comprehensive immigration reform, Obama came out and said as much. He said, 
look, I've got the votes in the House for comprehensive immigration reform. We can actually do something about immigration reform. And he couldn't get the vote because Boehner, who was majority leader at the time, wouldn't bring it forward. Um, and Boehner is under all kinds of local pressures from local constituents who want to push back and against the president. But if you gave the president enhanced agenda-setting powers, the kinds of national long-term policy solutions that we think are going to be central to effective government have a better chance of getting a hearing. Now, that's not to say that they're necessarily going to be enacted into law, right? Congress can vote them down and carry on its merry way and continue to pursue the existing legislative process. So this is not about creating a dictator or allowing the president to unilaterally pass whatever policy he or she might like, but it is about exalting the president's agenda-setting power so that the terms of debate on climate change and immigration and poverty are attentive to national long-term concerns in ways that right now they are not. Wouldn't the incentive still be in place for all members of Congress to band together and vote no on the president's agenda items when they come up and keep doing what we're doing. So it's an interesting idea. I mean, that that as an option is certainly available to them. They could vote no as a matter of principle on everything that the president proposes and just carry on their merry way. That's true. The question is, would they? And I think the idea is that now there are some moderate legislators who, given the opportunity to vote in 2009 on comprehensive immigration reform would have voted yes. They weren't given that opportunity. And it's on the basis of the lack of an opportunity rather than overwhelming opposition that that bill died. Um, Imagine an election where we have a fairly strong-willed president. You yourself have done a lot of research arguing that the executive branch is always looking to extend its authority in in whatever ways it can. Um, So a scenario where we have a strong-willed president elected and a majority in Congress of the same party, and this president wants to do something fairly radical that in the past would have been maybe filibustered. At best, a watered-down version might have passed. Is there a situation in which some very radical, apocalyptic policy is is enacted? So this is a policy. It, it exalts the president's agenda-setting powers. That's what it does. It, it gives... It allows the president to come forward and say, Congress, you have to vote on this, on this specific policy. And that's all it does. Then Congress is free to respond, yay or nay, as it so chooses. Now, does that mean we may see different kinds of policies enacted? And that whereas before we had no policy, we will see a policy? Yes. The answer to that is yes. Does that then in turn mean that some of these policies may be misguided? The answer to that is yes. Elections will be consequential, right? Who we put into office will matter that much more, particularly who we put into the executive office will matter that much more if this power is given to the president. Mind you, what we have, though, is a system of government that is guarding against this concern, right? What do we do if the madman assumes the office? What we need to do is separate power, divide it, and ensure that presidents in particular play from a position of weakness, And what do we have as a result of that? We have a government that's grossly inefficient, highly dysfunctional, and wholly incapable of solving problems. So if you want to get into the business of thinking about how do we actually attend to climate change, then then you need to say, well, who is institutionally equipped to address that kind of a problem? 
you're not going to find the kind of leadership that you need in Congress. There's reasons why Congress has done absolutely nothing about issues involving climate change that go way beyond Republican opposition and skepticism to the science behind climate change, that they are institutionally wired to think about that kind of a problem, again, in very local parochial terms. And climate change is anything but a local parochial concern. So if you want to get into the business of solving problems, you need to think about institutional reforms. And the way to do that, we think, is to think about how you responsibly allow the president to play a bigger role in setting the terms for a subsequent debate. It's not to cut off debate. It's not about making the president a tyrant. It's about shifting the conversation so that it has more to do with national long-term considerations and less to do with what do we do about some local population today. So this fast-track agenda-setting power would require a constitutional amendment. There's a couple ways to do that, right? So Congress can either vote itself or it can be compelled to put together a, a convention. But then after either a convention or Congress voting, it then will go to the state legislatures around the country. And you need to get a supermajority of states then to ratify the amendment. This is a high bar. It's an important reason why we have had so few amendments to the U.S. Constitution and why the essential architecture of our government born of 1789 is with us today. But we think there are a number of factors that make it, if not probable, at least not impossible, uh, to see this kinds of institutional change happening. The first is that there's this incredible discontent with the current state of Washington and a recognition that it is grossly inefficient and highly dysfunctional by the American public. The kinds of problems that we have in mind, these vexing social problems, are not imagined. They're real. And I think that makes the need for institutional reform that much more urgent. It also is worth noting that over the last 100 years, all kinds of powers have been ceded from the legislature to the executive branch. That this isn't an altogether new move so much as it is a consolidation or a continuation of past moves that have occurred, wherein the president plays a more central role in the governance of the country. We think there's a strong argument on behalf of it, and it's one that may, that may resonate. I think any time that you imply that the founding documents of the country and the founding fathers were anything but secular saints, is that the term that you, secular deities, you're bound to just encounter a lot of people that frankly just don't want to confront it, right? What do you say to somebody who is staunchly opposed to even considering that this document could need updating? I would say a couple of things. The first is that many of the founders themselves recognized the need for updating, that they themselves recognized that they were not omnipotent, and that each subsequent generation would need to take ownership of its government and adapt where need be. That the founders, a number of the founders, were quite explicit in this regard. Moreover, I would say, that it's precisely this gap between the capacities of our existing government and the design of our existing government and the challenges that we in a modern society face that is the source of so many of the inefficiencies and failures of our government in solving problems. And so if you want a government that is capable of solving problems, we have to think critically about the design of our institutions. We have to. And in that regard, we have to abide the advice of somebody like Jefferson. Now, Jefferson went so far as to say we should, we should throw out the Constitution every 
fix, you know, every 18 years, I forget the exact number, right? And start anew. And we're not arguing that at all, right? We're not arguing that at all. Nor are we interested in disparaging the founders generically. What we want to do is get beyond this sort of founder worship that has been really counterproductive for us as a country in trying to think about how we can have more effective political institutions, how we can have a more effective government. Do you have any sense of where this founder worship came from and why it's become so pervasive? It's a good question. I mean, it is pervasive. Books on the founders routinely make, you know, the bestseller lists and Hamilton on Broadway is lighting it up and is coming to Chicago soon. I've already got my tickets. We are gripped by this founder worship. That is true. Now, where exactly it comes from, I'm not altogether sure. I mean, I, I think we're more preoccupied about the effects that it's had on our political discourse and the possibilities that it has negated. We don't talk about how we ought to revise the Constitution or revise our political institutions. We jump forward and say, I want this policy or I want that policy, right? And in order for get, to get this policy or that policy, in order to get policies that actually stand a chance of solving real problems, Terry and I think, we need to first have a conversation about institutional design, which leads us inexorably towards a reconsideration of that first moment when these institutions were born in the Constitution. And this kind of reflexive worship of the founders coupled with this fear that any adaptation of our government will lead to ill-considered, tyrannical advancement of private interests has been destructive. It's been deeply costly. And it's part of the reason we think why the problems that we have are so persistent. And we want to do something about them. Thanks to Will Howell for making the time to talk with us. His new book, Relic, is out on shelves now. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Just search for Radio Harris. Today's episode was produced by me, Jake Smith.